0: Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean, casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast, just for
1: the halibut. Hello and welcome to the Fish Nerds, the show about fish, fishing, and eating fish, or the show that's always interesting, usually funny, and mostly true, I'm Clay Groves. Chief Executive Fish Nerd, your best friend, and I'm so happy you're here, so happy to be here, and uh, we're going to have an interesting show tonight. Today on the show is our Fish Nerds Book Club, the FN Book Club, and we're talking about Emily Voigt's book, The Dragon Behind the Glass. The Dragon Behind the Glass was the winner of the 2017 NSAW Science in Society Journalism Award, the finalist for the 2017 Penny O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award, Long listed for the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence, a library journal, best science book of the year, and uh, nothing but good about this book. Uh, Here's the description from Amazon. An intrepid journalist's quest to find a wild Asian arowana, the world's most expensive aquarium fish, takes her on a global tour in this engaging tale of obsession and perseverance and an enthralling look at the intersection of science, Commercialism and conservationism. Uh, a young woman a young man is murdered for his pet fish. An Asian tycoon buys a single specimen for a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Meanwhile, a pet detective alrighty then chases smugglers through the streets of New York with the taut suspense of a spy novel from Discover Magazine. The dragon behind the glass tells a story of a fish like none other, treasured as a status symbol believed to bring good luck. The Asian arowana, or dragonfish, is a dramatic example of a modern paradox, a mass-produced endangered species, while hundreds of thousands are bred in captivity. The wild fish has become the near-mythical creature. From the South Bronx to Borneo and beyond, journalist Emily Voigt follows the trail of the arowana to learn its fate in nature. Dun-dun-dun! Those of you doing your effing homework would have already read this. If not, that's fine. We don't give away any spoilers uh, in this. But we're lucky tonight because Emily Voigt is actually going to join us on the show, and that's really, really cool. So the fact that she wants to come to the show blows my mind. I love this stuff, which uh, is really great. So before we get to that, though, we did get one call. A friend from Houston called us to share his experience with the Arowana, which is what the book is all about. He's going to share that. Then we're going to jump right into our conversation with Emily Voigt joining us on the conversation. It was Doc Martin and our effing librarian, Jeff Donaldson. Uh, and they will they will share their experience with the book, and then we'll talk to Emily Voigt, have a great conversation, and that'll be this show.
0: Hey, hey it's Drake again in Houston. I um, want to share this story with you regarding the arowana fish. Uh, it's a boring story, but uh, I'll share it with you anyway, just in case no one else calls and shares the story. Um, I used to live in Michigan, and uh, a friend of mine had a Chinese restaurant in Gross Point. And late night, we'd go over to his restaurant when it was closed, and he'd cook up Chinese food. Well, they had uh, a fish tank with an aquarium with about three feet long that had this Arowana fish in it. And while my friend would be cooking up this Chinese food, I'd stare at this fish and think how cool it was. It kind of was, a to me, it looked like a cross between a tarpon and a kind of a snake fish. It's just an interesting-looking fish. It had some kind of dangling thing on the front of its head. So we, I got kind of used to seeing this fish, and... I always thought how cool and powerful it was um, it, when you kind of aggravated it, it, it really kind of just took off in the fish tank and could really splash that water around. Well, anyway, um, one month, uh, one night we ended up going back to the uh, Chinese restaurant and uh, I noticed that the fish wasn't there and so I inquired where the fish was and unfortunately the fish was so powerful that it toppled the uh, aquarium over and shattered in a million pieces and the fish ended up dying one uh, one night, so that was a that's my sad story. It, to me, I always kind of thought that that fish was trying to get to Lake Michigan, which was only a couple uh, hundred yards away from Gross Point, and uh, never quite made it. But uh, anyway, it's a, it was a really neat fish and very powerful, and ended up actually causing its own demise. It was so powerful. But anyway, I want to share this morning story with you. hope you're doing well up in New Hampshire. Take care. Bye.
1: That was amazing. I can't believe believe she came on this show with us. Uh, This episode is brought to you today by Spread'em. Spread'em is a portable outrigger for trolling for fish. It's a -a one-of-a-kind adjustable assistant for hooking up multiple lines to your boat without the hassle of crossing lines. Everyone that's used the prototype has loved it. It's great for trolling fish in a boat with your friends. Uh, And if you go to officialhooklinesinker.com, you can watch a video of this product in... In action. This is still on the fundraising stage. If you support them, uh, you will save 150 bucks off your Outrigger. So it's a great deal. You can go back a couple episodes and you can hear our interview with Michael Willett, who invented this. Go to officialhooklinesinker.com to save. If you order it and you put the word spread in the comments, You can save 10% off of anything at OfficialHookLineSinker.com. Or if you want to go directly go to GoFundMe, look for SpreadEm, S-P-R-E-A-D-E-M, give them a few bucks. uh, That helps them a lot. So if you don't want to buy it, you want to support a local business, that's a good way to go. That's OfficialHookLineSinker.com. Jeff Danielson, our epic librarians here. And Doc Martin could not stay out of this one because this is right up her alley. So Doc Martin is here. And we're talking about Emily Voigt's uh, 2016 hit book, uh, The Dragon Behind the Glass. And we we all read it. Yes. <laughs> the whole thing. The whole th- no, not me. I read the whole thing. 90%. <laughs> Jeff, you were just talking off air about what was the most fascinating thing about this book for you. What was that? You were, going, you were just doing it.
2: Yeah, so I, many years ago, back in the early 90s, my best friend and i were really deep into the aquarium world and in fact we had an arowana um, that someone gave to us because it outgrew its tank and we had an absolutely enormous tank that we put it in and unfortunately given the you know the kind of predatory nature of the arowana you would think it would be an aggressive fish but it wasn't and we had more aggressive fish than it in the tank it was a big tank so it had big fish in it and they bullied it really bad, and so we eventually passed it on around the aquarium circle of life of aquarium hobbyists to somebody else that could have have uh, had a tank big enough to keep an arowana. Um, and, and this is the South American silver ar- arowana, um, and that was what originally struck me with the book. I just was I work at a library, and this book comes by with a picture of an arowana on the front, and I go, "Oh, wow, cool! I'm going to read that." And turns out it's like way more than just about a fish you know it's about the aquarium trade it's about the ramifications of putting something on on the uh, CITES list um there's even murder and crime and all this stuff in it and a very interesting cast of characters like kenny the fish who likes to take pictures of himself naked with strategically placed fish
1: uh, who there's, doesn't uh,
2: yeah well, no, I mean, obviously we all do um the heiko or Heiko, I don't know exactly how to pronounce his name he's He seems like uh one of those colorful characters uh then you've got Tyson Roberts and all these fish experts um and then just even the people like the people who at the end of the book who are with her just the her you know her local. I don't know what you'd call them, guides, I guess, Michael and Esteban. I mean, it's all very interesting. The the story of the people is as interesting as the story of the fish. And that's what I liked about it.
1: Not perfect. I think you've we're done. We're done the book discussion. <laughs> it's funny because for me, what I liked best, especially near the end of the book, uh, is when she, and I will talk about that with, with Emily in a few minutes. Is I liked when she started talking about how to define a species because one of my favorite things I'm teaching is speciation and how we can't agree on what an animal even is. Um, she brought up my favorite topic, which is there's no such thing as a fish. No I such know, thing as a fish. I love that. By the way, there's another podcast in the world called No Such Thing as a Fish. Um, which I refuse to listen to because I'm boycotting them because that's a great name. (laughs) It bothers me that they nailed it. Uh, And she talked about the kanduru, which is one of my favorite fish to talk about because it's so horrible. And, you know, it's always fun to talk about uh, urinary tracts and fish together. So those were things I'm going to bring up with her. Doc, what are you going to focus on?
3: Um, sure. So I really liked, uh, her view of ichthyology. I thought that was just really interesting. Um, and I think it's towards the end of the book where she kind of brings up this point of um, a lot of the ichthyologists said that, you know, now a lot of people are molecular biologists. They're all doing this DNA. You don't have whole organism experts anymore. And actually that's something that in academia, we talk about all the time. Um, so my university, one of the things that we do is we actually value these whole organism experts. Um, I think much to maybe the chagrin of the administrative Aspect because that's not really where the money is anymore. So students don't want to come to learn about fish. They want to learn about that new cutting edge technology about genetics and CRISPR and all of those really neat things. And so there, that is really, really true and accurate. Um, and she had a lot of other really interesting kind of insiderish insights about the cites and IUCN and red listing and you know the 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 double-edged sword of listing a species or discovering a species and what that does to the species itself and whether or not any these kinds of lists are actually a good or a bad thing and i really like
1: that (laughs) right because she gets into talking about talking about how scarcity how making it a commodity actually makes adds value to it and actually can crash that fish population if you say you're not allowed to have that thing anymore And the few people who have them now have this more valuable thing. So, and humans like that stuff. That's so much fun. And
2: (laughs) yeah. And there was another interesting issue about the, you know, they're farming these Asian arowanas for sale. So they're readily available from aquaculture. Um, So, you know, what do we make of that when we have an endangered, a species that's endangered in the wild but being propagated in captivity for the aquarium trade, what does that, how do we deal with that as well? Because that would provide an easy conduit in from fish from the wild as you just slip them in with the aquacultured fish. But then there's also the idea that, you know, these aquacultured fish are being selectively bred for what we want and not necessarily keeping to what the original Arowana genetics for wherever it originated, which of these sub variations, subspecies or species or whatever you want to call them, which we, you know, it's hard to tell what's what as Erica and you said, but um, the, the issue of, yeah, we're creating these kind of, domesticated arowanas and some people are like well we can just put those back in the wild and, and well that's not the same fish that you started with
1: it's a, a never-ending challenge and there's probably no no winning answer to any of this stuff and i can't wait to see what what emily has to say about all these things and there she is <laughs> hey welcome yeah, thank
4: you so much for having me. I'm delighted to to be on. Yeah, and
1: congratulations. Uh, I I know how much work it is to get any of this stuff done, and you did this huge project. And uh, we're gonna jump right into the conversation about the book. Um, so this is all this book's all about the the hunt for the most expensive aquarium fish in the world, uh, the uh, Arowana, right? Yep, that's and, okay. and you traveled yeah. the whole world. And my first impression reading the book was, you remember Lord of the Rings, when you get the book, you open the front pages and there's a map in there and you can see the whole, the whole world of, of that. The, the places you go in this book might as well be out of that book. I had no idea where you were. I was trying to follow it. <laughs> I wish I had a big map so I can trace your adventure. So tell us about uh, the most exciting place you went on this adventure, looking for this.
4: Oh yeah, thanks. I mean, I, I have to say, I have to admit, I learned a lot of geography uh, over the course of the years that I was working on this um, because I also was not familiar with all of the corners of the world that the fish ultimately took me. Um, and it's also interesting you mentioned Tolkien because I started to think of the fish as kind of like the ring, <laughs> like it was, it was fundamentally corrupting to anyone who who, who got a hold of it, and myself included. Um, yeah, in terms of what was most exciting. I mean, I would think uh basically it took me to Borneo initially and then um in an unexpected twist I landed in the southern tail of Myanmar uh which was at the time closed off. It's still very hard to kind of get into. It's not an open area. Uh and and ultimately I landed in the Amazon. And I think uh I think that the stakes kind of kept escalating for me. So, um it just got more and more exciting and and each um each kind of uh, leg of the quest uh, holds a special place in my in my memory for sure. Um, I, there's nothing like the Amazon though, uh, especially for a fish person. <laughs> um, I have to say so
1: you you yeah. got sucked way yeah. down way down the rabbit hole with this one. I mean it's it was an amazing adventure. Um, uh, uh, Jeff, you were talking about uh, some of the characters that she read along the way. I think in the book, really what brings this book to life is the character development. Jeff had some thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, I at one time in my youth was deeply involved in the aquarium world uh, and I I had some knowledge that there were these people out running around trying to find fish in various places Uh, and the whole kind of cast of characters, uh, especially Heiko, Heiko, how do you pronounce his name?
4: Heiko, Heiko Blair, yeah.
2: Heiko Blair is a, is a kind of a shadier version of indiana jones i kind of <laughs> get the feeling uh, that he's yeah, you know he, yeah. um
3: mm-hmm.
2: and kenny the fish certainly is a very interesting colorful character anyone who has pictures of themselves naked with strategically placed fish is an interesting character you, know, we you all got have tyson them. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Um, Tyson Roberts, uh Ralph Britz, Alex Chang, and even uh like Michael and Esteban who are your guides essentially there in the Amazon, all I really enjoyed that this was as much about the people involved as it was about the fish. Um, you know, I think that kind of if you're not a person who's a total science geek or a fish geek, the story of the people alone, like Heiko's mother being this, you know, Amazon Explorer is, it, it's all very, very interesting. And I think it really, that's one of the aspects of the book that I really liked.
4: Thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I wasn't a fish geek when I started this whole thing. I didn't think I have had any particular interest in fish actually. So um, it was definitely the characters that pulled me in. And uh, Heiko, you mentioned uh, when I started um when I started kind of keeping up with him and meeting with him in New York when he came through, I started to realize that this was a story that um, had legs—no pun intended—but <laughs> um, yeah, fish don't have legs. But uh, yeah, no, he—he, he, his story and the story of his mother, who was uh, so Heiko Blair. For those who haven't read the book, is a third-generation ichthyological explorer. Uh, his mother took, uh, him and his siblings into the, uh, Amazon rainforest into an uncharted region of the Amazon in the 1950s in pursuit of what was then the world's most expensive aquarium fish, the, uh, discus. Um, and, uh, they lived with cannibals. I mean, it, it's really like, it's, it's really the kind of story that makes you question its veracity. And that tends to be the sort of story that I'm attracted to, um, uh where you really have to dig to uh find out if if things are true and i in this case i found that um the truth was way weirder than any fiction that i could have uh, come up with yeah so
1: so that that whole story that that whole side story with all the cannibals and stuff i found that fascinating i kept imagining the big movie of this book and who would play you in the movie if this were a movie
4: Oh, God. Uh, I've never been asked that. Um, that's a little hard. You know what, though? I, I have to say we were watching Homeland the other day and uh, my husband said uh, Claire Danes because, uh, yeah, I was I was pretty crazy when I was pursuing this fish sometimes. I mean, it's sort of like a, a paranoid world and uh, being on my own and uh, kind of unfamiliar settings uh, with all these kind of amorphous threats. Uh, I definitely kind of succumbed to the paranoia, especially traveling in Myanmar, which is um, you're always expecting to be watched by the government anyway. I'm sure I was watched, but uh, yeah, it, it would definitely, it definitely had that kind of spy element um, to it. Uh, so yeah, that, that's, that's a possibility.
1: How many laws did you break right in doing this research? Oh,
4: <laughs> I hope none. I have to say, I hope none. I, you know, I write in the book that, that, um, you know, breaking rules definitely makes my feet sweat. Like I am. And it's true. I, <laughs> I just uh, am not the type to, um, to break rules, but I, you know, I, I sort of succumb to the quest too. And maybe cut a few corners uh in places but but not necessarily knowingly. Um like when we ended up in, in Colombia over the border, um it was a surprise to me. I didn't know that we would we would be or in Brazil from Colombia. Um you know it's the middle of the rainforest so it's hard to know where you're crossing what border. Um but yeah, no, it was definitely um it was definitely an adventure. <laughs>
1: It, it's really cool. You did a great job of like breaking out the, the adventure and the travel, the the culture of the fish collection, and then the science of it, which I which I found fascinating. How you could pull all three of those things together into into one arc, uh, that kind of that really worked well together. Uh, now, Doc Martin is our resident scientist. Uh, she's our she's you know, like 22 years old, has a PhD, and college professor, all the things. Uh, but she has some thoughts on some of the science.
3: You're almost there with the H, Clay. Real close. (laughs) Uh, Hi, Emily. Nice to meet you, officially. Um, So I finished your book yesterday. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, So I started off with a love of fish. Um, When I was about in second grade, I wrote that I wanted to be a fish biologist. (laughs) So coming from the other angle there. (laughs) Um, And so I really enjoyed um, when you met these ichthyologists and these famous fish people. You had a lot of really great insider insight that i'm not sure if you you realize how well you really hit the nail on the head there um i think my favorite one so being a a trained kind of ichthyologist and fish ecologist the the whole organism scientist Mm -hmm. um i thought that was really interesting that you brought up later in the book that a lot of people like me complain about this way that we're going with molecular and genetics and stuff like that and i was just wondering Um, What else, beyond what you had said briefly in the book, did you notice about that kind of way science is going? And how do you feel about that?
4: Right, right. Well, so what you're referring to is this sort of shift in biology that happened after, uh, you know, the molecular revolution. And then all the funding started going towards DNA and genetics and that kind of work. And we uh, are losing a whole Body of knowledge uh, pertaining to whole animal biology. So that means taxonomy, systematics, all those um, all those fields that that used to be kind of the the fundamentals of, of biology, um, but that are not not taught so frequently anymore uh, at, at the college level, um, at the high school level. Uh, it's something that I you know it was a big hole in my own personal knowledge. Um, that I don't even think I realized I had until I was reporting this book. Um, so I'm particularly interested in birds uh, and um, but it was only really by doing this book about fish that I started to learn what was what and to, you know, know my species and be able to identify birds. I mean, I know a lot of people do that as a hobby, but it, it was something that I hadn't, I just grew up thinking I love birds, but I didn't know what, you know, a brown booby from a tufted titmouse. you know, I didn't know what was what. And I think that that's more common than not today. Um, especially with fish, I have to say like, uh, they're, they're less, you know, birds, uh, birds are easier to see. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I feel like, um, that was something that I, I learned as I was doing this book that, that we, that it wasn't sort of like I had just missed the courses I might've been interested in. It was that, there had been this huge shift in the way that we teach biology and the way we think about biology. And it was like, we, we had left out some, some very basic information that I really think that all kids should be taught. Um, And it's something that I think about now I have a two year old um, and, um, and yeah, my takeaway from this book as much as anything um, is that, uh, I mean, the first step to, any kind of of biological knowledge has to be kind of knowing what's out there, knowing what the names of species are, how they fit together um, evolutionarily speaking, um, their history, uh, all of that, and and um, that's something that I really hope that that uh, he can learn um, at a younger age, and that maybe we can start to to bring back. Uh, so yeah, no, that that was definitely. Uh, a big part of the sort of journey of discovery for me and just as an aside i mean that's what i admire about the aquarium hobby i think that uh, you know linnaeus wrote that if the name be lost knowledge of the thing is also lost um i love that quote because it's true. nobody knows the names of these little fishes from such and such tributary in the Amazon. <laughs> and you go to these meetings with the i mean uh, sometimes it's, you know, people who keep fish, it's like really a diverse set. And so you have people who are doing all kinds of different things professionally, but yet they're just so passionate about... Um, Uh, about, uh, the hobby and they, they will just rattle off these Latin names. Uh, and I find it so impressive. I find it really admirable. There are certainly things to criticize about the hobby. I'm not a fish keeper myself still. Um, and, uh, there's different, and there's sort of different paradoxes within the story of the arowana that, uh, I had to kind of really work on the story for a long time to even get my head around such as the fish being a, uh, endangered species, but also mass produced and, uh, how that can come to exist and why that matters, you know, uh, how putting a fish in a tank in your living room is, is just because a fish exists in, in, you know, a billion tanks, uh, it can be really gone in the wild and it's like, it's like the living dead, you know, from an ecological sense. And I think these are things that not everybody knows, uh, and, um, um, yeah, but it, it, but in terms of knowledge of the natural world, I can't fault the aquarium hobby because I think that it is really uh, this holdover from this wonderful uh, period in the nineteenth century when amateur naturalists basically invented modern biology and um, and, yeah, I, I find it really admirable.
1: Good. Uh, now, one of my favorite, because I have a background in science teaching, and when you got into the science of the book and talking about uh, speciation and defining species, my two favorite games I do with kids is, one, have them define species, and two, have them define fish. Two things that are impossible to do, and it's, it's activity I always run with groups of students, and they, it never comes out. And you hit both of those things in your book, I'm like, it's like, I wrote this chapter. Uh, and then you said, there's no such thing as a fish, which is a thing I've been saying for years, um, based yeah. on the same quote that you read in the book, uh, you, that you wrote in the book. So I listened to the book on audio, so I feel like you read it to me. Oh. I'm not a good reader. <laughs> um, <laughs> so But I, I love that you pulled that science in. And it's interesting, I was reading some of your reviews on Amazon, and you got only two two-star reviews. And one of them criticized your extra science in the book. Uh, it, it kind of went on about how you spent too much time talking about species and defining <laughs> fishes and how do you feel about people who criticize you for being a nerd
4: oh i don't know i mean first of all i'll own it i'll own <laughs> i i like the name of your podcast and i'll own my nerdy identity for sure <laughs> uh yeah i i think when you write a book like this i i think you just have to write about what interests you personally um and follow that as a gauge. I mean, you do need to listen to readers when you're developing drafts. If you go, I, I had to cut a lot of science too, you know, I had to, because it needs to be accessible and it needs to be punchy. So nobody wants to read tons of stuff. Or Doc, Doc Martin does. Yeah. Yes, I definitely do. Yes, thank you. (laughs) I'm sitting in a room filled with fish books. I mean, I have like wall-to-wall fish books in here. I've read a ton, so I I enjoy it. But I I do think that the best science writing can boil down these concepts into um, sort of digestible bites, you know. But that said, I mean, I don't know. The one thing I learned after this was published is that when you put it out there, people say – like what, you know, you, you have no control. It's, I, I don't, some people might not want that much science. Some people uh, might not want me in the narrative, you know, uh, which I ended up deciding to do. And, and um, you just sort of have to, to, to write what you would want to read. Um, and that's how I, I think of, you know, the final product.
1: Well, I, I think it was smart, and um, personally, I like reading books in the first person, so that works better for me. So you wrote it for me. Thank you. Um, and also, I want to thank you for including the uh, kanduru in that uh, in the story. It's my, one of my favorite fish to talk about. Uh, I, I bring it up whenever I can because it always makes people squeamish. I'm not going to get into that fish too much because uh, the readers can, can digest that on their own, but uh, it, it made me so happy. I'm like, oh, finally, someone else thinks that's funny. <laughs>
4: oh yeah. I mean like I I don't know how much you want to say but the <laughs> but the uh kindiro is known to um it, it's kind of a little bit controversial but it basically swims up private parts your and stuck the idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so um and it's not it's not too discriminating so any hole you can think of it <laughs> will gladly get confused and end up in there. So um yeah, I just like I don't know I, as a I as you might know. I mean, I, look, I wrote a book about like a fish that can sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars, and I'm obviously ad- attracted to um, drama. <laughs> you know, like um, I, I I don't pretend that it was sort of the nuances of the story that drew me to it. I was all about people punching each other out in fish theft. And, you know, the, the crazier, you know, the, the guy, Kenny the fish, uh, posing nude with, uh, with strategically placed fish, that kind of stuff made me be like, Eureka, this is it, you know, this is the, the story for me. So when I came across the kindy rule, <laughs> that, that had to go in there. You,
1: you sure. had no choice. Yeah. So we should talk about the marijuana a little bit. We've been talking about everything else except that. seems like we're avoiding <laughs> the main topic of the book. Uh, now, when you first started out, you didn't think much of this fish but as you got more addicted to this quest, how did your feelings change towards this animal?
4: That's a good question. Um, yeah, I, I mean, they did change. They changed. I worked on this book for a long time, so they they changed multiple times. <laughs> um, so initially, um, I sort of set out because I... I didn't understand it at all. In the United States, the fish is prohibited. It's banned. You can't bring it in legally as a pet because it's an endangered species and it's listed on the U.S. Endangered Species Act. So when I was first exposed to the fish, it was in the context of um, uh, a pet detective in New York, uh, somebody uh, policing the uh, illegal wildlife trade in New York City. And I just I didn't get it. Why would people risk so much for a fish? And, you know, it just it seemed funny to me Without I mean, there are a lot of serious issues here. And and ultimately, I think the story of the arowana is really like a a very grave tragedy. So I don't mean to make light of it. But I was picturing somebody coming in with a, a suitcase. With a like, how do you even traffic a fish? I couldn't figure it out. And then when I looked it up and tried to get to the bottom of it, I saw stories of like an Australian housewife getting caught in the airport because she had an arowana underneath her skirt. And the uh the quote was something like, We heard these flip, flipping and flapping sounds <laughs> that was at the airport. So they the security officers ended up finding out she had like 51 fish beneath her skirt. Just like odd, and she was just a normal woman, like in her mid forties, like at home with her kids, who got like just too caught up in her desire for this animal. Um, I'll just, it's also banned in Australia because uh, of invasive species concerns. So the US and Australia are the two countries that ban it. Um, so yeah, in, in here in New York, um, I heard about a Wall Street banker who had broken down in tears when his illegal pet fish was confiscated. And I just was like, What what is going on? Ultimately, I visited somebody in a high security federal prison. They searched me before I went in. I couldn't even take a pencil. I had to just remember everything he said to me. And he was there because he was like so into this fish. Um, I actually asked him, I said, you know, why? Why do you like this fish? And he said, well, because I think it brings good luck. I just stared at him for a long time and even he had to laugh because, uh, here he is sitting in like a federal penitentiary penitentiary uh, serving his time. Well, it, it brought um, you good luck. Yeah. yeah. Oh, did it? Well, I don't know. I'd like, now. Const- <laughs> <laughs> well, I managed to disentangle myself from its, from its thin hold. Um, but yeah, no, for, for a lot of years, I, you know, I was, uh, I w it was, it put me through the ringer. Um, I kept thinking I would be done with this, but I, I kind of had the sense that I had to find it in the wild to really understand, stand its story. Um, and um, uh, I mean, I think there's some truth to that. I, I felt like I couldn't really make sense of its history or or make any pronouncements about what had worked, what hadn't without knowing if it was still there or not. Um, you know, it's, it's so,
1: interesting. You just brought up finding in the wild, how you had to find in the wild to really tell its story. Your other negative review on Amazon criticized you for, for having to find this fish. In, I'm not making this up. Go to Amazon. Look at the two-star reviews. One of them hit you and said, by having to find this in the wild, it made it all about you and not the fish. Um, right, and and right. for me, both of your two-star reviews are why I love the book because oh, it did become about you. It became about <laughs> obsession, and I love obsession. I love that nerdiness, and, uh, and uh-huh. you just dug in on this thing. Uh, now, Jeff, you had some thoughts about the endangered species and, and how the whole process works with these fish that you wanted to ask about. Are you still with us?
2: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm still here. Yeah. So, I, like I said, I used to be into the aquarium hobby quite a bit. Actually, at one time, had my roommate and I, my best friend, had a very large fish tank, and we got passed down a arowana, silver arowana, South American arowana, that had outgrown its previous tank. And we had it for a while, and it certainly was a, a very interesting fish. I will say that you would think it being this top predator would have been the boss of the tank, but it wasn't, and it got bullied really bad. <laughs> and We eventually had to pass it on to somebody else. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a shrinking violet compared to some of the cichlids that were in the tank, but... Uh, anyway, the whole the whole issue of the and I think it's it's been brought up here in this discussion before, but that this thing can be simultaneously an endangered species and mass produced is is a paradox that is hard to deal with because some people are going to say why can't we have this if they're breeding them by the thousands and thousands,
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, um, and then. Also I think you address in the book that some people are like well we can just take some of these breadfish and put them back and of course those aren't the same fish that originally came out we've been we've been shaping them to what we want them to be and so I just thought that was a really interesting part of the book the paradox of an endangered species that's that's also mass produced and available
4: that's right. Yeah, it took me a while to get my head around. Uh, so just a couple points. One is that the silver arowana you mentioned, that's from South America. Just for any listeners who are like, wait, this guy had an illegal fish. <laughs> that one is perfectly legal in the United States and it doesn't sell for a ton of money. Um, it comes from You know, it's a much wider distribution uh, for the silver arowana from the Amazon. So it is um, a relatively common fish in the Amazon. Um, but still affected by this trait. And I can kind of explain how Um, the Asian arowana, the fish that I started writing about, a close cousin to the silver arowana um, lives in a, you know, it's still also a relatively wide distribution for a fish because it's uh, across Southeast Asia. Um, But it's smaller because, you know, it's, it's just not, it's just not an area um, as vast as, as the Amazon floodplain. Um, uh, but right. It is, I call it a mass produced endangered species because it is virtually depleted from the wild. So they are extremely hard to find in their wild habitats now. Um, they're still there, but just nothing like they were 30 years ago, um, 40 years ago, you know, um, and, um, and likely to be fished out if they ever, you know, are found. And uh, at the same time, it's bred by literally the hundreds of thousands a year on farms in Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore. So, um, and it's it's all tracked, it's all tracked by CITES, the uh, Convention on the Trade of endangered species of wild fauna and flora that's uh it's a treaty administered by the UN since the 1970s um and it kind of governs governs what can go where um and so all the farming program is um is certified by CITES and all these fish are microchipped and then tracked and so theoretically you can I mean there's tons of smuggling um there's a you know very dark side to the trade but Theoretically, you can look up and see that these things have literally been traded by the millions across uh, international boundaries. Um, but at the same time, um, it, so it, it's hard for people to understand who like the fish. They're like, well, look, mine is, mine is bread. A lot of people in the U.S. don't understand why it's not allowed in, given that, that they really do come from farms now. I mean, they really do. Even when you find smuggled fish coming into the U.S., I would say with 99% certainty that these are not wild caught fish because you just can't find the wild caught fish anymore. Um, They're almost always smuggled from farms. Now the farms might not be properly certified or such and such, but, but these are, you know, they're, they're farm bred fish. Um, But, you know, the commercial farming of endangered species is really the bigger topic in which the arowana story exists. And it's, it's, it's just, it's a highly controversial enterprise because there can be all of these uh, negative repercussions to, um, to creating a market for an animal, um, which has really been what happened uh, to the Asian arowana. Um, it was after the farming program began that suddenly there was a spate of fish robberies across Southeast Asia. You know, Singapore, which has one of the lowest crime rates in the world, had uh, four fish heists in a single week. Um There was a a really horrific murder that I start the book with uh, in which a young man was nearly beheaded for his fish. And all of this is in the wake of this well-meaning farming program that intended to flood the market with fish and extinguish demand. And it it, it just it didn't. In the case of the arowana, you could argue perhaps it has in other in the case of other species. I get into that a little bit around crocodilians, which is a, a slightly different model. Um, but, uh, but I think we need to pay attention to what happened to the airwana because it applies to all kinds of other things like tigers. You know, there, there are more tigers on farms in China now being bred for their meat and bones than there are in the wild. And that has, um, serious repercussions for, uh, for the wild population.
2: Yeah, definitely. I, you know, having been involved in the trade in, well, not in the trade, but in the aquarium hobby at times, I, I felt not good about it at times. And ultimately I quit keeping exotic fish for that reason was, is that I'm somebody's out scooping these things out of, out of rivers somewhere. There's some demand and I don't know the sourcing of this. I don't know how these fish are getting to me here in the United States. And I eventually turned to keeping native fish instead because number one, they're free. They're right outside the back door.
3: Yeah, You know, I could
2: just go out, I could just go out down to, like, literally after, shortly after having the big, huge fish tank and everything like that with all these exotic Mm -hmm. Amazon fish in it, like the red-tailed catfish and things like that, I just kind of said, I'm kind of done with this. And I would just go down to the creek, just, you know, you know, I could walk from my apartment to the creek and go catch interesting, attractive fish, put them in my aquarium. And I knew that there wasn't, these weren't endangered species, uh, they weren't you know, having to be transported all over the place. Who knows how much, you know, mortality you have involved with that. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I pretty much gave up the exotic fish aquarium hobby and just settled on, I'm going to keep what I can find locally.
4: Look, I'm all for that. I don't say it explicitly in the book, but that is something that uh, I concluded myself as I was was doing this story. Um, you know, we don't, a, a lot of people don't even know what's in their own backyard in terms of the native species. And when you, when you keep native species too, you also eliminate, you're more aware of what's going on, what's happening to their habitat around you. Um, and, uh, you eliminate the concern, uh, of introducing invasives because that can happen. You know, the, the aquarium industry actually moves more species globally than any other industry. I found that extraordinary.
1: It's crazy um, how often, but one thing, really be careful with this kind of talk about keeping natives. I'm going to end up for a second, just because in most States, it's illegal to take your native fish and put it in an aquarium and keep it in your house. So check your oh, laws. Okay. Don't, don't. Don't well, say Emily the, told me to take all the fish out of the Yeah,
4: please. <laughs> um,
2: it is legal in Missouri as long as it's not a game fish.
4: Okay. I see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wasn't picturing actually wild caught. I was thinking, uh, you know, from from aquarium shops that know what they're doing. Um, but, yeah, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, it's not something – I admit it's not something – keeping natives is not something I know a tremendous amount just because I haven't uh, – I'm not a fish keeper myself, Um uh, you know, for for other reasons. So, uh, yeah. so with all this said and
1: done, uh, do you still like this fish?
4: Do I like this do fish? Well, like or do you
1: hate him? Are you like, does he just make it bananas, or you're like,
4: yeah, I do, I do like this fish. You know, I I I never found them particularly attractive. Um, <laughs> they're sort of this like this dinosaur era, tough looking, gnarled bulldog of a fish. And, um, you know, I liken a lot of the photos. So if people Google the Asian marijuana online, and then they might think, well, that woman's crazy. These are actually beautiful fish. But, you know, it's sort of like looking at Photoshop models, because they're under certain lighting, and there's, it's like, they're very carefully posed. Um, but when you go to see them in someone's tank, I mean, they're they're really this sort of rough looking creature. Um, I would say that I really respect the Asian arowana. Um, uh, I don't know whether I like it or don't like it. I, I'm not sure I like it in people's homes. I, 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 I like it where it has been living for millions of years. You know, it really is relatively unchanged since the time of the dinosaurs, which is just an extraordinary thing to think about. And, um, and I respect that, and would hope that we uh we can find a way to uh to keep them where they've been for so very, very long, rather than having a fad that's really very shallow it only only sort of arose in the mid seventies um rather than having them extirpated just within within our lifetime
1: Well, perfect. uh doc, do you have any final thoughts or questions
3: um uh, how about two final thoughts? So my first <laughs> thought is, I didn't want to interrupt when you're talking about the aquarium trade, because it's really cool. But I have one experience in the aquarium trade. When I was finishing my dissertation, I worked at a local pet store. And I used to, because I'm a huge nerd, um, they always have you know pet store names for fish, which may or may not reflect on what that fish really is. And so uh, they had one in a saltwater aquarium and I wanted to feature it as fish of the week. My boss let me do this. And then we gave a little discount or whatever. And as I tried to find out what this fish was, I couldn't find it online. It was being sold as something, but I was pretty sure that that's not actually the right species. And so I actually tried to call the distributor and the guy that I got a hold of via email was so excited to talk to me about it and this fish came in from the philippines and then all of a sudden after two weeks of kind of back and forth he just completely cut contact with me once he found out that i was a research scientist just absolutely stopped
4: and that's interesting
3: why why do
4: you think think it wasn't there was some funny business going on
3: well, it's hard to say because I know we talk about where do fish come from and are they farmed or are they native caught? Uh, once you get out of freshwater, especially kind of in the Philippines areas, um, some of the practices aren't so great. Silent. So, you know, I'm not, yeah, I'm not using any distributor names or anything here. because I don't want to put anybody under the bus since I don't actually know. But I just thought it was really interesting that someone that worked for that company was so enthusiastic to help. Until he started to ask, oh, well, well, what do you do? Why do you want to know this? And I started to tell that person and then just nothing. And I've never heard from them ever again.
4: Mm-hmm. So yeah, that yeah. Just- it's not always, it's not, it's it, certainly the arowana trade is not open. It's a very closed trade, but I've heard mm-hmm. that that can apply to other, other parts of the aquarium trade as well. Yeah, there's some
3: pretty shady stuff that happens in the aquarium trade, um, particularly with, I think, some of the bigger sexier fish i think you even use that term that there's there's the sexy fish and the not sexy fish that people want to have in their
4: tanks that's right the arowana is uh is unfortunately <laughs> sexy. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna wrap up here um two, two more things um Rhett, do you know about talbot
4: and i say hi back uh yeah no Rhett's a, Rhett's a great guy uh yeah, we spoke after the book came out. Yeah, um, great guy. And and, so, and
1: we also want to know what's next for you? What's your next big nerd adventure? Besides a baby, what you have a two year old. Right. What's next?
4: Right. <laughs> so I am uh doing a little research into um uh how would I put it that doesn't give everything away. Give it away. Um, yeah. <laughs> <It's timeless. laughs> um I'll just say hybrids. Uh I am I am researching Human and other animal hybrid. Human, so, yeah. so uh, right, so you know, superheroes. I love That's it. The idea. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I've been, I've been, uh, I just kind of a story idea that was was in my my head for some time, and I've uh, just started to dig into it. But uh, as you know, with the fish story, I, I I reported that for something like three and a half years, and then took another two to write it. So I'm not necessarily the fastest. But uh, but this one has me motivated. So yeah, I'm I'm hoping to to move on it faster.
1: Well, we're, congratulations! Well, it's just so much work getting to where you are, and it's a big deal, and it's exciting. And uh, thank you so much for your time today to to us. Our, our little show. It's a big deal that you made time for us, and we really appreciate it.
4: Oh my gosh! I, anytime. I really enjoyed it, and um, yeah, and and I look forward to listening. Yeah.
1: Perfect. All right. I think Jeff, are we done? Thank you. We're done. done.
4: Cool. Uh, Thank you so Uh, much. It's such a pleasure. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: So that's it. You've listened to a bunch of fish nerds when you should have been fishing. Theme music today is from our friend Wally Pleasant. Still can't believe he made us that silly song. I love it. Special thanks to Doc Martin, Jeff Donaldson, who is our effing librarian. A huge thank you to Emily Voigt, author of The Dragon Behind the Glass, Really excited to have her on the show. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Next week on the show, we're going to talk about uh, fall or winter trolling for uh, for lake trout. I We took uh, a trip and had a good time, recorded some good audio for it. So stay tuned for that. Special thanks to our families for supporting us while we podcast. Go on Fishing Quest and doing all the silly things that nerds do. So until next time, follow the code of the fish nerds, spawn early, spawn often. Never trust a free lunch with strings attached, and swim against the current every chance you get.
0: Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, Fish Nerds, Fish Nerds, Fish Nerds, nerds. it's a podcast just for the house. Fried it in a basket or broiled in a pan. Eat it raw like you're in Siam. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. It's a podcast.